Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. My name is Jackie Ramage and I am the head of the School of Maths and Stats at the University of Sydney. It's my enormous pleasure to introduce Keith Devlin, um, who is visiting us from Stanford. So Keith is a co-founder and executive director of the university's H-Star Institute and co-founder of the Stanford Media X Research Network. He's famous amongst mathematicians for having done the first MOOC in mathematics in the world and uh, other Uh, educational developments. He's a World Economic Forum Fellow, a Fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and a Fellow of the American Mathematical Society. His current research is focused on the use of different media to teach and communicate mathematics to diverse audiences. In this connection, he's the co-founder and president of an education technology company, Brainquake, that creates mathematics learning video games. So the gamification of mathematics is well underway. Uh, He also works on the design of information and reasoning systems for intelligence analysis, and other research interests include theory of information, models of reasoning, applications of mathematical techniques in the study of communication and mathematical cognition. So he's written over 33 books and over 80 published research articles. He's been awarded the Pythagoras Prize, the Piano Prize, the Carl Sagan Award, and the Joint Policy Award for Mathematics Communication. In 2003, he was recognized by the California State Assembly for his innovative work and long-time service in the field of mathematics and its relation to logic and linguistics. And as if that's not enough, he is the math guy on uh, public radio in the US. Personally, I remember being greatly impacted by his book called The Maths Gene, Uh, Although, when I went to look it up, I noticed it was published in 2000, which seems quite late, uh, given I I thought I had read it in high school or something, but it turns out that's impossible. Uh, It must have been much later than that. (laughs) I was just delusional. But anyhow, it's a great pleasure uh, to introduce Keith Devlin, who's going to talk to us about finding Fibonacci. Thank you. Okay, so it's a story about books, and there's a deliberate reason why this is not a widescreen presentation, because we're going to be spending a lot of our time thinking about the medieval period. Um, And it's not about one book, it is actually about several books, although the title of the talk is the same as the title of my most recent book about this topic. Um, In fact, it's it's a story about a book from medieval times, a book about a book, which was written by me and published uh, in 2011, and a book about a book about a book, which is the book called Finding Fibonacci, uh, which is about the second book in that series, which is about the first book in that series. Uh, I promise I'm going to stop uh, with the third one, although there is uh, one more book. So we began in the medieval times, 1202, with this book, about which I'll say quite a lot, Libra Barchi, it's not misspelt, This is the book of the non-abacus. This is the book that taught the Western Europe how to do Hindu-Arabic arithmetic and thereby started the financial and commercial world that we've lived in and the West has dominated since medieval times. Um, There's a little question mark about whether that book did it and that's a lot of what this story is about. Uh, Then there was a book I published in 2011, The Man of Numbers, Fibonacci's Arithmetic Revolution, which was the story about the production of that book and the impact it had on the world. 
And then my most recent book, uh, which is designed and to look and feel like a diary, because this is actually a collection of my, lection, my, my, my notes, my, my research notes, uh, my, the diary I kept when I was doing the research on that book to describe that book. Since I'm not a historian of mathematics, uh, and I'd only attempted one sort of semi-history book a few years ago about Pascal and Fermat and the founding of probability theory, um, I was conscious of the fact that I really don't know what it takes to do history, and I had no way of knowing as I went through what was important and what wasn't. So I did what every person in the, lab, in the laboratory sciences do. I kept a detailed lab notebook so that if something turned out to be important, I could go back and see where I got it from and how I got it. I knew I, knew I would probably need a complete record. Uh, most of the stuff, of course, turned out to be irrelevant, but I didn't know at the time I was able to go back and consult that and then eventually it turned it into a book. And there's actually another book involved. Um, and this is a sort of a side issue because, like any good project, it raised its own questions and I got some various insights. And I ended up writing a third book. Um, it was actually the second one because it came out at the same time as The Man of Numbers, in which I compared the author of this book in the 13th century with the person who gave the world the Macintosh, Steve Jobs. Um, because what came clear, became clear to me as I was doing this project over many years, I began in 2001, 2002, this book didn't appear till 2011. It was a long project, I was fitting it in among various other things, but as I was flying back between Silicon Valley and Pisa and Florence and Siena and the archives and so forth, what struck me was that the story I was uncovering was detail for detail for detail, the same story as the production of the Macintosh in Silicon Valley in the late 70s, early 80s, with Steve Jobs being the parallel of Leonardo of Pisa or Fibonacci. Uh, it wasn't just vaguely similar, it was similar down to almost every detail. Uh, some ways not surprising because this was really the, the, the spark for the world's first personal computing revolution, as we'll see, and the Macintosh was really the thing that sparked the modern personal computing revolution both of them made a new way of doing arithmetic or computing, a new way of computing accessible to the masses. Uh, took it out of the scholastic rooms and put it into the marketplace. Um, okay, as we'll see, Leonardo shared with Steve Jobs, or maybe I should say Steve Jobs shared with Leonardo, that flair for marketing a new product where people initially think they couldn't possibly use it and a few months later, a few years later in the case of Leonardo, wondered how they ever did without it. Um, it's of that nature. Okay, so that's going to come up later. So my story started in 2002. That's when I finally decided I was going to do this thing. I'd actually been interested in this guy Fibonacci for years. I, as a math teacher, I, 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 you know, any story that, about an interesting person or an interesting idea that I can put in to sort of spice up the lectures, especially for the freshman students, I'll, I'll do it. And for years, I used to use this example of the Fibonacci sequence because it was a fun thing, it was cute. You could introduce all kinds of mathematical ideas with it uh, and you could relate it to things in the garden. And uh, let me not say too much about that because people relate it to things that it's not justifiably relatable to, but I used to use it. Now, it turns out that that has really nothing to do with the person Fibonacci who wasn't even called Fibonacci when he was alive. I'll say something about that later. Everything you think you know about Fibonacci sequence is either true or blatantly false, but either way has almost nothing to do with the person I'm going to talk about. Okay, so we'll separate that. That means if you came tonight to hear about the Fibonacci sequence, 
It ain't going to happen. Uh, this is the real thing. Uh, I do mention the Fibonacci sequence in both my books because my publisher said, you've got to mention it. You know? If nothing else, just so that it comes up in the Google searches. Um, but it's really not part of the story. Um, okay, look. The Fibonacci story itself starts in the 13th century. Okay. And it's to do with this. Modern arithmetic, place value system, 10 digits, 0 through 9. You know, all of the algorithms we learn to, to hate or and or love when we're at school that's, that have been around for generations. And the standard story of how that thing came to be was you go back to India in the first six or seven centuries current era, um, and they, that was developed um, by the people in, in that location. And uh, as often is the case, we tend to sort of punctuate history with the publication of significant books. Because it's, you know, every now and then someone writes a book that turns out to be influential. That sort of establishes the canon. And that really says that's what we have. It's a, it's a punctuation point, And then everyone moves ahead. And the one that's usually taken to capture Hindu Arabic arithmetic, where we can say it was there, it's all in there. So it's, it's like the equivalent of Euclid's elements for geometry. You know, it's not clear how much of that was due to Euclid. He was collecting it together, systemizing it, putting it together in an, in a, in an accessible, readable way and thereby helping people learn it and advance society. And so we usually say Brahmagupta in the 7th century, at the end of the period of development, was the sort of the person who sort of captured that in a book. So that was the first book. And then we usually regard the next big step uh, as Al-Khwarizmi in the 9th century in Baghdad, because the, the traders, and by the way, this is really not a story about academics working on ideas separated from society. This is about traders and to some extent engineers building things and doing things and needing practical ways to do it. It was the traders, the Arabic and Persian speaking traders going up and down the Silk Route between the Orient and Africa, North Africa, that learned this method and started using it in their trade. And it was that that carried it northward to the shores of, uh, of North Africa and it would eventually jump across the Mediterranean to Italy through this person, Leonardo. So the 9th century, Al-Khwarizmi writes a book. He's the person who gives us the word algorithm, uh, the thing that rules most of your life these days, algorithms. Well, the name came from him because in his book, he systematically described all the algorithms, the procedures for doing arithmetic in a modern way. In fact, he did more than that. He invented... or in, in, he wrote the book that collected together a very efficient way of scaling up arithmetic that those traders developed. The traders realized that when they were trading, they were doing the same kind of calculation over and over again. The amounts would change, the currency would change, the weights and measures would change, the amounts of material, cloth or whatever. But they were doing the same sequence of steps. So they'd ended up inventing what we now call algebra, from the Arabic algebra, which was a way of scaling up arithmetic so that you just have formulas that you can plug numbers into and turn out the answers uh, one by, in, a, in, a, in a semi-automatic way. So that was a big advance. It was, very, it was literally scaling up. We speak today about scaling up algorithms. Well, those guys in, in 8th, 9th century Baghdad did manage to scale up arithmetic uh, with, a, with a method that we now call algebra. And then in the 13th century, Leonardo of Pisa becomes aware of this and gives it to the Western world. So that's the standard story 
And it's a story I used to tell for years when I was doing sort of contextual semi, you know, I would spend 10 minutes in a lecture on number theory or whatever, if it was practical arithmetic. What I was talking about, practical mathematics, I would sometimes tell this story. And it was a nice, simple little story that sort of gives credit to the major figures uh, in this, this lineage of, the, of this system of arithmetic. <laughs> okay, so we're focusing on the last person, Leonardo Fibonacci. Um, let me just say a little bit about him. We don't know much about him at all because you know, he wasn't a fit. Well, he actually became very famous during his lifetime. Interesting, actually, I'll tell you a little bit later. He became famous. He remained famous for about 150 years after his death. Then he disappears from the history books until the 19th century when he's rediscovered. And we'll sort of explain what was going on there. <coughs> but since he wasn't famous at his birth, he wasn't nobility, there was no records kept at the time. Um, what little we know about him comes from a few things he wrote about himself and a few sparse references that are around. So we know that he lived from around 1170 to around 1250. Uh, spent his, whether he was born in Pisa, we don't know, but he certainly spent his childhood in Pisa, uh, grew up in Pisa. Uh, it's a, a, a distinguished family. His father was a, 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 a city official in trade and commerce. And Pisa was one of the big trading capitals of, of, of Western Europe. Then, it, the, First of all, Italy was the capital. If you wanted to trade, you were traded across the, the Mediterranean. And there were the, the, the major ports were Pisa, Florence, and a little bit uh, later, Venice and Genoa. Um, you might ask yourself how Pisa and Florence can be ports, because if you've been, if you've been to Italy, you'll realize they're inland. Well, what happened was the big, the big sailing ships sailed around the Mediterranean, they, they birthed in Livorno, what we now call Livorno, which was then called the Porto Pisano, the port of Pisa. And then all of the goods were moved on to flat-bottom barges and, and dragged along by, by mules or donkeys, whatever they had, uh, into, into uh, first of all, Pisa along the River Arno, and then, then beyond that to Florence. Uh, so it was a slow process, but it was very effective, and those were the, it, initially it was Pisa and Florence that dominated trade. And his father was big in that, so his father was a big shot. And in fact, his father, uh, at some point when Leonardo was a teenager, went across to the, the, the town of Bougia in North Africa, uh, and then a short while after, he invited his son Leonardo to join him. So at the, the, as a late teen, Leonardo goes across to join his father in Bougia. And it was there that he saw the traders, the Arabic Persian-speaking traders, using this system of Hebraic arithmetic. This, this was his, for those of you who know the Steve Jobs story about going to Xerox Park, and seeing that Xerox has invented something that they didn't realize the value of, that's what he did. Leonardo sees these people using this arithmetic, and the trader, all, the, all the Italian traders would have seen that, but this young kid Leonardo, this young teenager, looks and says, this is an invention that can change the world. And just as Steve Jobs did, he actually puts those words into practice, and he did use it to change the world um, by making that method available so that everyone could use it. So it was that observation that really started the Western uh, revolution in finance and commerce, though as I mentioned, there were some wrinkles that only became cleared up during the last 20 years. In fact, I was lucky, very lucky, to start my research in 2002, because that was the very year when an archivist, or a mathematical archivist in Siena, who I eventually got to know, made the key discovery that allowed the whole story to be said. So it doesn't get any better than that. Uh, 
Otherwise, I wouldn't be here giving this talk. I'd be giving a talk about the Fibonacci sequence, but that's not what we're talking about. This is much more exciting than the Fibonacci sequence. This is the entire Western world we're talking about here. Okay. Leonardo goes back to, to Pisa eventually. Well, he stays in North Africa. He wanders around. He reads a lot of the Arabic texts. By the way, his father almost certainly invited him over for two reasons. It was known that Leonardo was very good at arithmetic, so he could clearly help his father with calculations. And almost certainly, and this is a surmise, but it's a reasonable one, almost certainly he wanted his son Leonardo to take over the business and follow on after he, after he retired. And in order to do that, he would have to learn Arabic. And so one of the things he wanted him to do was bring him to Bougia to help him with the sums, with the, with the accounts, and to learn Arabic. And as far as we know, Leonardo did learn Arabic, but there's no hard evidence for that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, the book he brought out first of all was this book, Liber Abaci, uh, Book of Calculation. That's really the way to translate it. Abaci, uh, abacus with two Bs, means calculation in general, not abacus with a single B, which is calculation on an abacus board. It's actually worth mentioning that how did people do arithmetic before they knew Hindu-Arabic system? Well, they did it one of two ways. They either used finger counting, and they had an elaborate system that would work for integers up to, up to 10,000. Integers up to 10,000. It was very elaborate. There was a very clever code that they did it. Uh, you can find copies of I'll show you a page of, of a book, actually Leonardo's own book, where there were some of the diagrams of the, of the way you'd use your hands. But that was one way to do it. It took a lot of practice, a lot of training, and it had very disadvantages to it, as we'll come to. The other way of doing arithmetic was using an abacus. Uh, in the case of the Chinese, they had an abacus which consisted of beads on wires. The one that was used in Europe was a board with lines ruled on it and pebbles. And you move the pebbles, for which the Latin word is calculus, so you move the calculi along the board, and that was how you did the calculations. Okay, so that was the method of doing it, and then you had to record the transactions. If you were in Italy, you recorded them in Roman numerals. So it was a cumbersome system, um, but that was all that was available. Okay, actually, not was it only cumbersome, but there's a big problem with that method. First of all, you're going to record the, the numbers in, in Roman numerals. So that's going to be the record. That's the audit trail, as it were, and that's, you know, you're not actually calculating in there, so there really isn't an audit trail, but that's the official record of the calculation. If you do the calculation either way, there's actually no record of the calculation. There is no audit trail, as accountants like to look for. If there's a dispute, you have to go back and redo the calculations and do them until both parties agree. So first of all, it's a system that's only suitable for two people doing trading one-on-one. -on -one. It doesn't help for someone who might want to sit in Pisa and have 10 traders wandering around the Mediterranean and needs to look at the books every month because there are no books because it's all been done verbally by moving pebbles and they didn't videotape them back then because they didn't have iPhones. Okay, too bad. Okay, so... Very inefficient in the fact that it, it, for very reasons, but not least because it didn't leave a record. Think about it for a moment, about one of the things Leonardo must have spotted, having helped his father do calculations back in Pisa and then in Bougia, when Leonardo spots the fact that when people do arithmetic with Hindu-Arabic arithmetic, with the standard algorithms, there's an entire audit trail of the calculation. There's a record of every single step. If there's a dispute, you can go back and check it. So just as accountants today tend to print off long, thin reams of paper when they're doing calculations, which seems weird in an electronic age till you realise about the need for audit trails, that's what was going on there. So Hindu-Arabic arithmetic has an enormous benefit 
for scaling up trade and commerce of the actual calculation generates its own audit trail, its own record. So very, very powerful. Um, so when Leonardo goes back, he actually started writing this before he went back, he wrote this book, The, Lead, the, the, the Book of Calculation. And it, it made him famous very, very quickly. Within a few years, he was famous throughout Italy. He eventually was invited to the court of the Emperor Frederick and various other things he did. Okay. Uh, and it's this book which has been generally cited and credited with bringing the Hindu-Arabic number system. It, it became known as the Hindu-Arabic number system because the, 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 the Arabic and Persian-speaking uh, Muslim mathematicians took it and, and really extended it and made algebra, built algebra around it. So it wasn't just that they sort of brought it into an, another language and, and, and held on to the knowledge. They actually changed it and developed it and advanced it. So it, it justifiably changed from being called Hindu number system to Hindu Arabic number system. And uh, the step of taking it across into Western Europe was generally credited to, uh, to Leonardo. Okay, so let me say a little bit about him. Uh, almost all we know about him. And then we'll go back into that story of whether he really did do what I just said he did. First of all, his name wasn't Fibonacci. In fact, they didn't have surnames back then. He would have been called, Leon he was called Leonardo. Uh, when he became famous, he became known as Leonardo of Pisa, Leonardo Pisano. Um, it was an honorary, honorary title, but it wasn't a surname. Uh, and if you look at, this is a, the beginning of a manuscript of uh, Libra Barchi from the public library in Siena. It's, some, it's an image that I had taken because I've held that manuscript in my hand, I have to say. Um, and I'll say a little bit more what it's like to hold an ancient manuscript in your hands. Uh, if you translate the Latin, and you know, interesting, when I was at school, I dropped out of Latin after two years saying, I will never need this. Uh-oh. <laughs> I needed it. <laughs> um, I was able to say, I mean, I could have had someone, I could have had someone translate it. In fact, tricky passages, I got, some, I got a, a scholar to translate for me. But it would have been so much worse if I hadn't been able to sit there holding the actual manuscript in my hand and reading the thing and thinking, am I the 20th person in history to hold this particular manuscript and read it? In the case of one manuscript, am I the third person to hold this manuscript since the person who wrote it and actually read the words. So, you know, if you're a student and you think, will I ever need this? There's no way you can possibly know. Um, you know, it's like Steve Jobs who took a course on fonts and people thought, why do you want to take a course on fonts? Well, it turned out to be one of the keys to making the Macintosh successful. So, um, so there it is, and a translation from the Latin is, here begins the book of calculation composed by Leonardo Pisano, family Bonacci. So he would have been known as Leonardo of Pisa. He calls himself Filius Bonacci, and the name Fibonacci comes from that phrase. It doesn't mean literally son of Bonacci. I mean, that's about, sorry, literally it does mean son of Bonacci. But what it really means, since his father wouldn't be called Bonacci, is there was some Bonacci person in the family at some stage, and everyone was called of the Bonacci family. So the, 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 the real translation, what it means, is it's Leonardo of the family of Bonacci. Um, and the historian who discovered the story about Leonardo early in the 19th century, 1838, gave this person a nickname, not a nickname, actually a surname, 
for various reasons. First of all, if you're going to write history books and history and, and papers about someone, you need to have more than just a, the name Leonardo, especially since there was another Leonardo in Pisa a bit later who became more famous, so that was Leonardo da Vinci. So um, various, I mean, it's a good thing to give him a surname, and that was a surname that was attached to him. So this name only attaches to, to this person in, since the 19th century. Uh, and then a little while after that, the name Fibonacci sequence was given to that sequence of numbers, which is 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, on and on it goes, um, adding the last two numbers to give you the new one. That's as much as I want to say about it. Move on quickly. Um, that was given to him by a very well-known mathematical uh, mathematician and number theorist in France, Edward Lucas, uh, because it's an interesting sequence. I mean, it's a fun sequence. It, it, it's a good one for introductory number theory classes. Uh, in my MOOC, I used it as one of the standard examples because uh, all sorts of people had heard about it and I could illustrate all kinds of mathematical concepts with it. Um, not particularly deep, but it's a nice pedagogic tool. And uh, the only connection with Leonardo himself was in the book Libra Barchi, there are something like 600 or more, actually more than 600, worked examples. One of them is a cute little problem about a rabbit population, which is the problem that gives you the Fibonacci sequence. Leonardo gives it, gives the solution, moves on, and almost certainly never gave it a second thought in his life. It was purely an example. It wasn't his example. The Indian mathematicians who'd invented arithmetic use that example. It's a great example for giving people practice with place value arithmetic because it builds up at a nice slow pace and it goes from one digit to two digit additions to three digit additions and you're only adding two things together. So it's wonderful practice in arithmetic and, and the people who invented modern arithmetic, uh, the Hindu mathematicians in the first six or seven centuries, they knew that example. And it's, you find it elsewhere as well. So uh, virtually no connection with Leonardo, the only connection being it's one of the examples in the book. Okay, we don't know what it looks like either. There are two images we have. One is a wood cutting. The other one is a marble statue in Pisa. There's the wood cutting. The statue was, uh, was actually commissioned and, 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 and sculpted after he'd been rediscovered, after he'd been discovered in the 19th century, when Pisa realized that they had a famous person in their ancestry, so they commissioned this, this, this sculptor in, in Florence who completed it in 1863. And if you stare at it long enough, you can maybe say it's tried to, it takes that image and tries to make it more an older person, um, but yeah, who knows? In any case, those are the only two images we have, and they're probably just in artist's impressions. Okay, so we really don't know what it looks like. Um, okay. It actually turned out to be important for me to have an image in my mind, and I'll come back to that in a minute, because the way I went about writing the history was very non-standard. Uh, <coughs> in fact, the reason it was, was that you couldn't write a standard history. There was a good reason why no historian of mathematics had ever written the history of Leonardo. There wasn't enough information for a historian to write a book <laughs> and maintain their career. Didn't stop a ma I'm a mathematician. <laughs> Gives me an awful amount of confidence. Uh, we, we invent things all the time and we know they're useful. So if you can invent things like imaginary numbers and find out they're useful, you can invent an awful lot of stuff about Leonardo and claim and prove that it's useful. It's all in the utility. Okay. 
what we do have is a ton of information in the form of books he wrote. Because he wrote not a lot, but he wrote, given that these were handwritten manuscripts, it is a lot. And they were substantial books, some of them very substantial. First of all, there was Leonardo's Libro Barci. This, by the way, is the whole page that you saw the introductory paragraph from. And this is in the public library in Siena. If you want to hold it, well, maybe they won't let you hold it now. When I, when I went in in 2003, 2002, 2003, all I needed to do was place a passport at the desk. And I have two, so I, <laughs> I, I think I probably placed my British passport there. Um, and... I would certainly place my British passport there now, but that's another story. <laughs> okay, so, and then they would bring the book to you. You couldn't take it out, but they'd just bring it to you. Um, even more bizarre, they didn't look at my hands to see if they were clean. They didn't ask me to put rubber gloves on. So they put in my hands a 13th century manuscript, not the first edition, but the second one, I'll come back to, and just leave me to look at this thing and measure it and look at it. I couldn't take photographs, flash photographs, but they, would, they made many images for me and just... Uh, that was digital image, high-res digital images. But they just let me look at it. And you could just sit there and hold it and look at it and leaf through it and read passages and things, uh, sniff it and just generally sort of commune with this thing. It was really kind of staggering to have that. Um, and that's just a public library book on, on reference. Uh, so it might be a little bit more difficult to get in and do that now, but it is public property, so you could do it. Okay, um, so... Um, he wrote his second book at the end of his career, well, at the end of his, his book writing career, by which time he was famous. And the second book is a complete revision. We really have no way of interpolating exactly what was in the first edition. He learned a lot more. But by then, the book had been influential. All sorts of things were going on. So this was a master work that he produced. Uh, and there are actually there are about there are 14 copies of various stages of repair. Uh, three of them essentially complete copies. A couple more in good shape but not complete, and then a bunch of fragments, mostly in, in, in Italy, uh, a couple in Paris. Um, and I've actually held in my hand two of the three complete copies. Uh, the one I haven't is actually in the Vatican Library in, uh, in Rome, and I may mention why I haven't seen that later on. Uh, he wrote a big book on geometry, uh, 1220. Uh, I mentioned that he became, when he became famous, he went to the Emperor's Palace in Florence and they, they did a, a sort of a game show. Since he was a famous mathematician, they put him on stage and said that the, the, the philosophers in the court of Emperor Frederick gave him problems and he then answered the problems. Almost certainly they gave him the problems in advance, but he still gave a virtuoso display of his answers. And uh, in my book, The Man of Numbers, I, I, I give some of the solutions. They're remarkable solutions. Um, and in, and in, in the book he wrote of which there's a French translation available, those solutions are given. Uh, they show that he's a remarkable mathematician. He was not just an expositor. Um, in fact, you can't be just an expositor because if you don't understand the material, you can't exposit it effectively. Um, but he was, in addition to that, he was an extremely powerful, uh, creative mathematician. Um, he wrote a book about squares, sort of Pythagorean triples, uh, sh a small book, but a, but a very modern book in the sense of of being about Pythagorean triples. That's Fermat's last theorem sort of stuff. And he wrote another book, which was called variously Book in a Smaller Manner or Book for Merchants. Uh, I mean, today we'd call it Arithmetic for Dummies. It's, it's that kind of a thing. Um, a simpler account aimed at the merchants. Probably in... All of these were in Latin. 
This was probably in vernacular Italian. Unfortunately, no copies were found, so we just didn't know uh, what the thing actually looked like. And we only know it existed because in his second edition of Libro Abaci, he mentions it. And he mentions it a couple of other places as well. So we know he wrote that. So that's a lot of work. Uh, that was actually my handle for doing the history. Because when I sort of got interested in the person, I got interested in him because, he's, in a sense, I've been following in his footsteps. He was a mathematician who devoted a lot of effort to writing books that people would actually read and would spread the word. He would do what I'm doing here. It was mathematical exposition. Um, I've been doing that all my career. Uh, and so, you know, I just sort of looked past at this person as like Euclid. He was a person that had uh, done great work in exposition. But nothing was really known about him. So I was curious to sort of find out more. And initially I was disappointed when I found there was no history. Um, but then it occurred to me, I have something that the historians don't. I've spent my life writing expositions of new mathematics. I know what it takes. I know what you have to do to do it. That's what he did. So I thought, I might not be able to tell you whether he married, whether he had kids or whatever. But I think I've got a pretty good shot of telling you why he wrote his book, how he wrote it, why he wrote it the way he did, and the effect it would have had. Because I've lived that world myself. Uh, and I've met, and I know a few other people who've lived the same way, and we all share the same characteristics. For example, in reality, he was writing every book for himself, because he was working through the material to the degree where he fully understood it. It's not clear you really need 600 examples in order to teach people. In fact, most of us would realise that the students would disappear if we asked them to do 600 examples in a course. Way too many. But if you're trying to really understand the nuances and make sure you fully understand it, you'll do 600 examples. You will actually do them. So I would think it's pretty clear to me, at least, from my background, he was writing these for himself. That was the case of working through it, making sure everything worked out the right way. Um, and so since I could sort of use his works, I thought, I can see through his eyes what was going on. And ultimately, the only thing that matters today about Leonardo is the legacy of his works. So if I can create an image of Leonardo and his life, which is valid insofar as the works he left behind, then we have a, a story about Leonardo um, that's better than nothing. Okay. Um, so we can go back to this image. And I said there's a question about whether he really did start the modern world, whether modern financial methods really did begin with him writing that book. Because this is a classic case where we have massive correlation and the question is, can we establish causation? Okay. When I started the project, uh, it wasn't clear that it was going to be possible to do that. But as I said, there was a bit the discovery being made as I started in 2002 that actually provided the key step to be able to go from correlation to causation. Okay, here's the correlation. The book comes out at the beginning of the 13th century. Within a few decades, you have coming out of this area, epicenter is Pisa and Florence, and then a few other sort of bits and bobs around, but mainly Pisa and Florence. You have coming out of there a banking system, modern banking, and, and the Italian words that we associate with financial instruments, many of them 
come from, from the Italian. In fact, the word Lombard Street in London and San Francisco for the financial centers comes from Lombardia. So banking comes out from that region. Insurance, with the words polizza, for policies, coming out of that region. That's where modern international trading empires began. That's where it went from being two people trading off backs of camels to someone sitting in an office in Pisa or Florence with ships sailing around the Mediterranean doing all of the stuff uh, in a network. And it's where you get double-entry bookkeeping coming out of Florence from the Medici's. All of that within a few decades of the appearance of Libra Barcia. That is massive, massive correlation. But it is just correlation. So there's a red question mark there. Was it the appearance of that book, Libra Barcia? And if not the appearance of that book, was it Leonardo? There's a couple of questions. It might not have been the book. It could have been something else Leonardo did. Or it could have been something else. Okay. Um, well, let me just tell you just how dramatic that revolution was. The book comes out. Then, literally within a few, a few years, a few decades at most, 20, 30 years, you get the beginning of what turned out to be a vast array of handwritten books on practical arithmetic, written mostly in vernacular Italian. So almost immediately after the book comes out, you get the appearance of these books. These were not even known to exist until the 1960s. But when these started to be discovered in, in various archives, mostly throughout Italy, it was clear that there was this huge growth of interest and this rapid spreading of practical arithmetic. That continued for 300 years. Best-selling books, one of the most, the most reliable sellers, I mean, they're not sellers, but I mean, people who are making copies, one of the most reliable books to get. People wanted arithmetic books for very obvious reasons. If you could master arithmetic, you could set up in business. This was why people want personal computers. You could actually, without having to pay somebody else, you could start up your business at home and run your business and do it yourself. You just have to learn how to do the arithmetic and then you can start going. So, not surprisingly, people wanted to learn. How did they learn? There were these manuscripts floating around, these so-called abacus books. Short books, simple books, told you the basics, written in vernacular Italian. You found someone in your network that had one of those things or borrowed one of these things. You borrowed it for a weekend. You slavishly copied the entire thing, not having a clue what you were doing, which is the typical undergraduate student. You simply write it down without understanding it. It's also the typical TV newsreader, but that's another story. You didn't understand. But then, and this isn't always the case for students, you took your manuscript and you carefully went through it and you learnt from the manuscript. And that's why most of these books not only have a text which has clearly been slavishly copied, because it's obvious that you know, silly mistakes that you would normally have corrected as you went were left. But then the person goes through almost always in a different coloured ink, does diagrams, does annotations. That's when they go through and work it. So that was the method. You make your copy by hand and then you work through it. And then somebody else makes a copy and so on and so forth. In the process, by the way, you usually bring up the currencies to the latest currencies. You may change the exchange rate. You change them to the local measures. There were all the cantons and areas of uh, the regions of city-states of Italy had their own currencies and weights and measures. So you translated it into the local information. 
which is how it's possible to date these. You can, the, the authors usually never wrote an author's name because they were writing it for themselves. They almost never wrote dates on these things. But you can, you can, historians have sort of dated these and identified the location by the currencies and the values and so forth. So they can cross-reference these and, and, and basically draw paths of who was copying from what. Um, so there's this vast body of work. Um, 250 of these things have survived, which is kind of staggering because these are books that people just wrote for themselves in an era when paper was, not ex paper was expensive and so it was tempting to just wa wash the paper off and write on it again and use it for something else. Um, if 250 of these just handwritten manuscripts that had no import have survived to the present day, how many would have been written? Um, conservatively, I'd just say, just because of general sense of how numbers work, they've got to be in the thousands. You know, you, you've got to imagine that this, you know, whatever it is, one in ten, one in a fifty, one in a, you know, just think of what percentage would have to be, uh, might have survived. So almost certainly there must have been thousands of these things. Okay. I mean, one in four would get you into one thousand, so I'm sure it's not just every fourth one. There uh, must be much fewer than that. So there must have been lots of these things. And there were also hundreds of abacus schools set up where people would go and take evening classes or day classes on practical arithmetic. As I said, this was a big deal because this was how you could set up in business. It was the way to make a living in an era when trade and commerce was growing. I mean, that's the whole point. There's a revolution taking place where, and, and the epicenter is Italy, and you can get in on that act if you can just get some arithmetic. So you would go and take a class. Uh, it was believed that Leonardo gave classes in, in Pisa, and you got hold of a book and you made your own copies. So this was massive, and it went on for 300 years. Uh, and it was creating the modern world. So here's the question. That book comes out, all of this stuff happens. All of the material in here, mathematically, can be found in there. In a different form. In here, it's in scholastic Latin. It's deep. He sort of develops it like Euclid's elements, Euclid developed elements. The sort of axioms as rules. This is a scholastic written manuscript. It's difficult to read. The ordinary trader couldn't read it. So how is it? But the material's all there. And that's really the only place you're going to find all of that material. That was the first one in Europe. So it's all there. It's in heavy Latin, very deep examples. This is in, these are in vernacular Italian, simple examples. Mathematically, everything's in there, but was that really the origin? And the doubts were, it, since none of these were sort of extracted from there in a linguistic sense, it was just the ideas that were in there, they must have come from somewhere else. There had to have been a first one of those. There's probably only was a, there actually probably was a first one, because when you look at all of these, and scholars have done that, they were all copying from each other. You can even trace, as I said, because of weights and measures and things, you can, you can trace the lineages. This was copied from that, that was copied from that. A mistake comes here, the mistake is propagated there. You know, this is linguistic forensics, you can really tell the story about things. These were all copied from each other. So if you, and, and if you trace them back, you, get, you find you're going back to Pisa. So there was probably a manuscript, there almost certainly has to have been a manuscript in Pisa, that established this, this canon, and it was a single canon. The material is all in there. No, no, not quite. Not quite. 
Some of the material in this book, in these books, it actually isn't in there. It's in that other book Leonardo wrote called Practical Geometry because they often included a chapter from geometry just for the fun of it. And they found that in Practical Geometry. So whoever wrote the first one of these things had to have been able to read and fully understand Libra Bacci and Practical Geometry, not only understand them, but understand them so well that they could write a book that ordinary people could understand. As I've said, I've spent my life doing that and it ain't easy. If it wasn't Leonardo that did that first book, and we know Leonardo did write a small book for merchants, if it wasn't him, there was somebody else hanging around who was capable of doing that. Why don't we know anything about that other person? You get to be good at writing simple books by writing a bunch of more difficult books. It's inconceivable, at least to me, living in that world for 30 or 40 years, that you could actually come out of nowhere, write a simple book, and have a big impact, unless you'd left behind a bunch of other works, and none have been found. We have no evidence of anything from that era of anybody else. So from my perspective, this is an Occam's razor argument. There's nobody else around. The simple explanation is the missing link must have been that other book that Leonardo wrote. So let's go back and look at that list of books. Okay. The second, of it, the second edition wouldn't have been around. The 1228 one. So it would have been in the first edition. So we don't know exactly what's in the first edition. We do know what's in the second edition, so we know the material, we know what's in practical geometry, and we know what's in all of these other ones. But the two important ones are Libra Abarchi and practical geometry, and we know that there was this one. What we don't have evidence of, what we don't have, is a copy or the original of this one. We actually don't have a copy of the Libra Abarchi, by the way. None of these manuscripts are in Leonardo's hand. They're all copies, all of the manuscripts. Uh, there were copies sometimes in his lifetime, sometimes a bit later, certainly late 13th century, early 14th. So we only have copies. So the entire story is based on copies. Okay. The problem was, although we had copies of the second edition of Libra Abarchi, we have copies of Practical Geometry, we have copies of the other two books, there was no copy of that. 2002, I go to on my first trip to Italy, and I meet someone in the University of Siena who runs the Centre for Medieval Mathematics, who, although she didn't tell me at the time, was in the process of doing some of the most exciting research in her life because she found a copy. <laughs> the following year, um, when I'd gone back, and actually, I have to be honest about this. Um, Shortly before I began this project, my knees gave way and I was no longer able to run long distances, so I bought a road bicycle. And what better place to go with a road bicycle than Tuscany? So every year I was going out to Tuscany, taking my notes on the book, uh, my, my $4,000 road bike, and it was a tax-deductible operation because I was writing a book. So... Um, <laughs> So I get to know her in 2002. 2003, she realises that this guy, I mean, she knew I was a sort of a serious mathematician, but I think she was a little bit suspicious of this guy that's sort of going out with biking gear and lycra and biking up Montalcino and things. So, so, but by the second year, when I'd sent her some of my notes and some of my ideas, I think she began to take me seriously. And just as I was leaving, she handed me this manuscript in Italian. 
Well, my Italian is better than my, my Latin because I, I, had to, I was going to Italy a lot and at the very least you need to order good meals. So um, actually it's impossible not to order a good meal in Italy. They're, they're all good meals because it's Italian food. Right? Um, okay, so <coughs> as I'm leaving, she hands me this Italian manuscript that she's just produced uh, on this discovery she's made. Um, on the flight back, I start to read this manuscript and I'm just getting really excited because I think... This is unbelievable what she's found. Um, but I wasn't sure my Italian was that good, so when I got back, I put out a call by email at Stanford and said, are there any Italian graduate students around in the classics department uh, that will, you know, I'll give you $2,000 to translate this manuscript, and there was no shortage of, of volunteers, so I hired a graduate student. Um, I should have charged $1,000, but whatever. I was, ex I was excited. Um, and uh, that too, of course, was tax deductible, so it's not that bad. Um, so I got a translation. And then that nailed it for me, because I, then I was able to read it and feel comfortable I wasn't making any mistakes. Uh, so here's what she did. This is her. Uh, she began life, if I remember correctly, as a differential geometer, but then got interested in medieval mathematics. Um, that's her in her library, in, that's her in her, her office, her new office uh, in Siena, which is right by one of the gates looking out over the, the wineries and the rolling hills of Tuscany. Uh, very nice office. Um, this was the archive that she went into, which is just up from the, from the Duomo in Florence. Uh, I went there in a very, very hot, uh, dusty summer day, dressed in khaki shorts and a t-shirt. Um, and it took me quite a while to get in to that room, because that was the archive room of the Ricardiana Library, which is stock full of medieval manuscripts. Um, I'll tell you in a moment how I got into there, because you will not be able to get into there. Um, and I almost didn't get into there. I will tell you one thing, a Stanford faculty card does not get you through that door. Well, it gets you through that door, but it doesn't get you any further. Um, it's one of the few places in the world. You know, and Stanford has a... We have a campus in Florence, for heaven's sake. doesn't matter. You don't get into that library unless you have a very special archive access card. Um, so I'll tell you later how I managed to get in there. But I did get in, and I was able to look at this manuscript, which was around 1290, so probably after Leonardo was, was, was dead. So it's a copy of something. Um, it's either a copy of the first uh, Abacus book, which is, we're now sort of basically going to say was Leonardo's, there's nobody else could have written it. Uh, and there's other evidence that we can add on to that. It doesn't have a name, it's just Codex 2404, uh, much smaller, um, and it's, it's in Italian, so you can just read the thing. Okay, right at the beginning, it says this. This is the book of Abacus, according to the opinion of Master Leonardo of the House of Sons of Bonacci from Pisa. That's the translation into English. Um, that, by the way, was fairly common with all the Abacus books for the first 150 years or so, and then people got lazy, they stopped doing that, uh, which is why his name disappeared, because his name was maintained for several generations in all of these abacus books, but then people just stopped putting that in. You know, it's, it's 100 years ago, who, who's going to mention something way back like that? Um, but it is the missing link. It tells us, it was, it's 1290, so soon after Leonardo's time, that there can, it can have been at most a copy, or a copy of a copy, of the thing that Leonardo wrote, and there was nothing else floating around at the time. Okay, um, this isn't something to, I just want to show you that there is more evidence. You can, there's some other manuscripts that have been found, one of them in the Ricardiana Library, where you can cross-reference and say, yes, all of this sort of fits together. 
Um, and unless there was some strange doppelganger around of, of Leonardo, it has to have been Leonardo. So to my mind, it's, it's no longer an iffy story. Some of the historians are still sort of, you know, this is not the way historians usually work. They want more, something more concrete than this. Well, they ain't going to get that. Um, they either have to make do with what I've got or, or just nothing at all. And it's up to them. It doesn't make a difference to me. Um, okay, so... Uh, there is other evidence, and there's more that I don't mention here. But all of that's in the books, so we can go back to that picture, and question mark's gone. He's the guy. Okay. Uh, so we'll put that as a fact, along with all of those other things. Um, so this is big. This is the modern world in a few decades, just bursting forth uh, and, and, you know, in, in a way that actually ensured that the West uh, became dominant and is still dominant. I mean, you know, we're, we're probably at the end of that now. Uh, you know, Civilization moves west, right? It, you know, in, the, in, the, in the Second World War, it was on the east coast of the United States. In the Cold War, the, 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 everything was on the west coast, and, and essentially Silicon Valley and Los Angeles area. And now it's drifting across the Pacific. So as the world turns one way, civilization moves west. So uh, you know, it's, it's, it's China's turn, and it's, it's happening. Um, okay, why was he forgotten? That's interesting, because he was famous for a few hundred years. But then, as I say, his name dropped because no one started mentioning it. And eventually, he was completely forgotten. And the thing that sealed his fate in the history books was this. The moment the, his, the, the printing press came out in the 15th century, the first book is, I mean, everyone says the first book that was printed was the, the, the Bible. And that may or may not be true, but it was certainly one of the first. And certainly one of the ones very soon afterwards was a practical arithmetic book. The oldest one that's in existence was actually produced in, uh, just outside of, uh, uh, in, in Treviso, just outside of, uh, of, uh, of Venice, near where the airport, the modern airport is. Um, and that practical arithmetic book and the others that were printed, when someone was printing them, they would go to the most recent practical arithmetic book for the region, which had the latest weights and measures. So the moment the printing press came out, it sealed the canon to what the most recent practical arithmetic books were. And by then, none of them mentioned Libra Barchi or Leonardo. So from then on, the historical record, the material was there. It was in print, so it was able to make many copies. But Leonardo's name was lost and remained lost for many hundred years. The only way we know about him today is that one of the printed books that came out then was written, and this isn't, really a, this isn't really an abacus book, this is a genuine arithmetic book by a very respectable mathematician. Luca Pacioli, uh, a contemporary of Leonardo, the other Leonardo. And it's a whole book about arithmetic, geometry, proportions, proportionalities. So this is a book by a very respectable mathematician, uh, respectable in his own time, he had a reputation. It's a print book. And as it happens, not just as it happens, it's a scholar. So as a scholar, he does what most of the abacus book writers have long stopped doing. He cites the sources. And in that, he writes that this is all due. Just think, he's a big shot mathematician. And he says, I'm a big shot, but all of the stuff that I don't give names to is not mine. It goes back to this other guy that you've never heard of. To, to his readers, that is, but which I want to cite. 
So that one scholastic reference, God bless his heart, is why we now know the name of Leonardo. Because a historian, Casali, comes along in the 18th, 19th, early, late 18th century and looks at Pacioli. He was doing a history of Pacioli. He sees that reference and says, this is kind of weird. This guy is a big shot. We sort of ascribe all of these things to him. But he says it's not his. It all goes back to this person we've never heard of. Who was that man? It's almost like the Lone Ranger. Who was that person back in those days? Uh, so Casali, as a good historian, goes back to the archives, finds the, st the Leonardo stuff, and uncovers the story. So we know that story because of Casali, thanks to that reference by Pacioli. Um, now, when you came in, I noticed all around here there were these signs saying, Finding Fibonacci. I wish I'd had those signs when I was trying to tell the story because it actually took me uh, two days of very hot walking around Pisa in the middle of summer to find that statue. There was virtually nobody in the whole of Pisa, including the information office that I checked, that knew where that statue was. One of the most famous citizens ever. Um, I hope they know now because at least I've written these books and they've been translated into Italian. Okay, so my quest begins in 2002. I've already said wh why I wanted to do it and how I thought I could do it because I could get inside the mind of that person. How did I actually go about getting inside the mind? Um, and it's almost like someone making a movie, and I've worked with TV people and things. I had to sort of create the whole scene. It wasn't just going to be the facts. It had to come alive in my mind. So I said, the only way I can do it you know, other people could have maybe done it other ways. The only way I could do it was making him alive. So first of all, I go to Pisa. And since this is Italy, much of it is unchanged from the time when Leonardo was alive. For example, all of these buildings were being constructed when Leonardo was alive. So he would have seen the lower, the lower levels of these. So you walk around there, you're walking in the same place he would have walked every day, seeing the same things up to a height of 20 feet that he would have seen. You know, the tops weren't on or anything, but that was going on. Um, if you go along the River Arno, um, you know, many of these buildings were reconstructed after the Second World War, but the buildings are essentially, many of them, the kinds that you would have seen uh, way, way back then. Uh, and certainly, the stone towers that I'll show you images of, you can see. This was one of the two customs houses that goes back to those times. So Leonardo's father um, may well have worked in, in, gone into that one frequently. There's another one at the other end of Pisa, or there was another one at the other end of Pisa. Um, so you can see the, um, the, the, you know, the, the river's essentially the same, it's a flat river, there's still barges around, and things. so you can sort of see the activities. Um, it's not a trading port anymore, but, but you, you certainly get a good sense of what it must have been like, and that was important to me. And you can certainly see many of the buildings that are medieval, and since Leonardo came from a wealthy family, he would have certainly grown up in one of these towers. You know, you, you, the more wealthy you were, you had taller towers and you lived high. Because basically the, the street level is the garbage level. So you want to live high above the smells and just throw stuff out of the windows. Uh, somewhat crude, but there you go. Um, okay, so you can walk around and get a sense. And it was very important to me to do that, to just try and place myself in that location. Um, this was the port. This is where Leonardo would have got on a boat to go to visit his, to, to, to meet his father. Uh, that's part of the old port of uh, Pisano, what's now Livorno. This is modern, the modern area. There's a, a marina. Uh, on one of the walls, there's even an engraving 
of the old port in the medieval time with a, with a sailing ship. Um, I, I didn't see that the first time, but someone showed and pointed it out to me. Uh, so you can get a good sense of how things were, and I did. Uh, I searched for the statue because I needed an image in my mind. Uh, it was, you know, and a fictitious image is, it was, was enough because there's nothing counter to that. So I, I really wanted to see that statue. I wanted to sort of stand and get a sense of a, of a, of a, of a, of a figure. Um, and that has an interesting history. During the Second World War, it was actually in the front of this building along the central bridge in Pisa, over the, uh, over the river Arno. And there was this massive battle with the, uh, the Allies on one side and the Germans and the Italians on the other side. Uh, almost everything was destroyed, including the bridge. Uh, almost certainly they were trying to preserve that particular building, so they didn't hit that building, and in so doing, they didn't hit that statue because that's the statue of Leonardo. So it almost got destroyed. It, it is missing two or three fingers, maybe through shrapnel, maybe through victorious German or British or even Australian troops um, chopping them off as souvenirs. Who knows? Um, but it is missing a couple of fingers. But otherwise, it's, it's in good, uh, good repair. Uh, it's got a little bit of a history. I, I, you know, the books, both my books give all of this history in some detail. Um, it was then removed and it was put in this park uh, along the River Arno. Um, and I visited that park because I'd seen it as, you know, it was listed in many sources as the location. When I went, it was no longer there and there was no reference to where it was and nobody seemed to know. So I spent a, a half a day looking around various locations, including this one. The reason it was moved is it wasn't just tourists that went into the park, but the local pigeons went into the park and this was their pooping station, and so it got really messy. Uh, and so after a while, realising that their most, one of their most famous citizens was being pooped on, they took it away, uh, and eventually they placed it in this wonderful building in, the, in Miracle Square, Piazza de Miracoli. Uh, if you look carefully, you can see it there. It's right at the end of that thing. Um, even the person selling tickets didn't know it was there when I asked for it. I went and said, do you have a statue of Leonardo? And first of all, they kept saying Leonardo da Vinci. And I said, no, no, Leonardo of Pisa. And they would say, there is no such person. You're getting it wrong. And so, I, so no one seemed to know about this thing. But it was only by desperation. And I actually didn't see a reference to this. Um, it, I'll, I'll leave you to read it in the book. It was, a, it was an accident whereby I found this thing. Because there was actually no reference to where it was. Um, there were references that were somewhat obscure. Um, as I said, it was only accidental that I managed to triangulate and figure out where it was. But it's really very splendid now. You're at the end of that long corridor, and there it is in a glorious place in the corner. Uh, and there was me saying, I've found it at last, and taking many images. Um, there's a typo in the, uh, in, uh, in, in the plinth, because it says he's a famous mathematician of the 12th century, well, he wasn't. He was just born in the 12th century, so it was actually famous in the 13th century. So that, technically speaking, is, a, is, a, is an error, and it's an error in Roman numerals. Um, but he's certainly in a, in a, in a splendid location now. Uh, the other thing I went to see on a subsequent visit, because the first couple of visits I didn't know about this, there's actually a plaque that was put up to him at around the same time. And that's just along from that, that bridge that had been destroyed. You go along about 50 metres and you find this building, which is an interesting building with an interesting history with Lord Byron and various people. 
It's now the city archives, and in it, there's this plaque in the entrance hall. You can just walk in, or you could then, you could just walk in and hang around. There was nobody looking after it. Uh, it's in Latin. Uh, the translation, and if you want to read it in detail, it's in the book, both books. It, it, it was erected, the, the plaque was put up in the 19th century when they'd rediscovered him, recognising him. So this was part of the process with the statue and everything of recognising his great ancestor. And it quotes a declaration that was made in 1241 where essentially the city of Pisa honoured Leonardo, put him on a pension and so forth. So we know that he was still alive and kicking in 1241 and that he was already revered by the city. So this is part of the historical record that we can build on when we're telling the story. Okay, uh, the other thing I did was look at the manuscripts and we're almost done now um, because uh, the hard part of this process was finding out where everything was. And I realise that's what history involves, just finding stuff. Because um, you know, most of us look in a history book, but there wasn't one. So I had to, to write it. Um, interestingly, there were, you know, all the Italian historians and archivists, they knew this stuff, they just never bothered to write it down. So I would ask them a question and they'd give me the answer. I think, I wish you'd told me that two years ago. But there it goes. The Siena manuscript I looked at... Um, there's the Siena Public Library. I was there during the Palio, which was kind of funky because I had biking, archives, good restaurants and wine, and the Palio to see as well. So it doesn't get much better than that. Um, that's the building. There's part of the manuscript. Some of the initial pages are kind of badly, uh, badly mangled, where they have tables and f calculating aids and so forth. There's some of the finger arithmetic describes some of the, the complicated coding. There's that front page again, and I had, but I had dozens of images taken, because again, I didn't know which ones I'd want. Um, these are just some of the more interesting ones, uh, because of the colours and the, the symbols and so forth. Um, okay, the Florence manuscript, uh, equally, uh, I mean, this is one of, these are the two complete manuscripts, very little missing from these, and so you can interpolate between the two of them to make sure you're reading the right stuff. Uh, it's in the Florence National Library. Um, this was the one, the, the Siena one, I just went in and gave my passport. This took some getting into. Um, they were not going to let me in with a library card because the book I wanted to see was, was, you could go in the library, but I couldn't get into the archives. So I'm in Italian, I'm arguing with this person politely, saying I've, you know, I'm a professor from, I mean, I did look like a tourist, admittedly, but I'm a professor from Stanford, and all Stanford professors look like tourists. I, you know, um, you know it, if you're the president, you maybe wear long trousers rather than shorts, but you just wear an open neck shirt. So it's that kind of place. So, but I, I, you know, I had my library card and I had notes and everything. Wasn't going to work, and I clearly was, was, was not getting any progress when a woman walks by with a, with a group of books, clearly an employee of the library, turns to me in, in a wonderful Manchester accent, says, What's up, love? <laughs> She's the head of the archives. We bonded instantly as, as a Yorkshireman and a Lancashireman would when living abroad. Um, and within a half an hour, she said, I'll get you something. So she goes away and you know, she, first of all, she takes my passport and various things, some details. Comes back in about 20 minutes with this laminated card, which is a full access to all the Italian archives. I am now an accredited Italian archivist. Um, it not only got me into there, but it was that card that got me into the Ricardiana Library as well. 
That was in, when I was trying to get into the Ricardiana Library to see that other manuscript, the, the, the small book for merchants. I started with the Stanford book, didn't work, with the Stanford Library card. As a, I just sort of, just as an afterthought, I thought, well, I, mean, I do have this other card. Uh, it wasn't clear to me it was going to get me into all the library cards at that point. But the moment I took it out, the custodian just beamed and said, of course you can come in. <laughs> and in I went. Um, but it's only because I have a Yorkshire accent. It's, <laughs> you use anything. Don't you? Right. Okay, so this is a Florence. It looks a little bit different, but the contents are the same. Uh, da -da -da, there we go. <coughs> uh, a couple more. Very pretty colours. Um, and then the Ricardiana manuscript. I've shown you a couple of pages of that. Uh, here's a couple more. There's the first page. There's another one. Uh, there's two more. Uh, again, we can see the person doing the calculations and the doodling. Um, around the edges uh, as they were working through it. Uh, so with the images, the statue, the manuscripts, that was all the stuff I put together to sit down and write the book. Um, the other good fortune was just as I was starting the project, an English translation of Liber Abaci appeared for the first time ever. Prior to that, there'd only been one printed version of Liber Abaci. It was in Latin, and that goes back to the 19th century. So this, became, this went into print for the first time in the 19th century, and it was from the Florence manuscript. But a, 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 a mathematician at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania, small college in Pennsylvania, motivated for the same reasons I was, decided he would translate Leonardo's works. There's the guy. It was published by Springer Verlag, but he died at the very last minute, just before it was published. I won't spoil the story, but there's a whole chapter in the, in the, in the Finding Fibonacci book about his story. I'm actually going to Bucknell University next week for a conference in honour of this person and the other people that were involved. The story of what, we take, what it took to get his work actually into print is one of the marvels of modern scholarship. It involved people forging identities, hacking into disks. This was stuff that's technically illegal, <laughs> but no one's going to prosecute them because this was all in the wake of scholarship. Um, but it's an incredible story. Uh, and when I discovered this story, I thought for that reason alone, I needed to write, I needed to take my diary and turn it into a book. It's an absolutely amazing story. This person is a hero of modern scholarship. His widow is a hero. Uh, his widow, on the fly, learned tech so that she could typeskip the entire Libra Bartsky in the modern format because he used an ancient word processor format. Um, really quite remarkable what, what happened in that, uh, that era. So there's a bunch of, of real scholastic heroes in Bucknell University. So we now have three books. Um, the Man of Numbers, Fibonacci thing, the ebook original. Let me just finish by bringing out this thing. They both produced books. Uh, I mean, he began with the Mac, but I mean, it then became a book. Um, <laughs> and Leonardo's book didn't look like that either, because that's a bound book. If it was representing one of Leonardo's books, it would have had to be his book for merchants, because the book for merchants were small and bound. But Libra Bacci wasn't, it was a, it was a loose leaf manuscript. So um, that's definitely not Libra Bacci. We can pretend it's his book for merchants. 
Um, and that's not the Macintosh, but because it wasn't called a book then. But the actual comparison is this. Neither of them invented it. They recognized the value and they found a way to make it accessible to the ordinary people. Literally creating a market that nobody thought there was and one, getting people to want something that they didn't even know existed before because it didn't. Well, it existed only in a conceptual sense. It was all about a computational interface. Hindu-Arabic arithmetic is just one interface to arithmetic. The Macintosh was just one interface to computation. Hindu-Arabic arithmetic was better than Roman numerals or anything else. The Macintosh was better than MS-DOS and whatever else was around at the time. Not least because it was accessible to anybody. In both cases, it was marketing. It was all about putting it in a format that people wanted to have and could use themselves without an awful lot of extra effort. And that's the brilliance of what both of those two people did. That's how you change the world. In fact, just as Leonardo, first of all, got it all to work and then turned it into something accessible. And you couldn't do this until you'd done that because it's only by doing that and understanding it you know how to distill it to the essence like that. That's not trivial. None of the historians I talk to agree with me. They just say, ah, anybody could have done it. B.S. No. There was nobody else around that could have done that. Uh, I sometimes feel like saying, okay, take your history book and write a popular article on it. Some of them can do that, of course, but not all. Okay. Same thing here. You know, Apple, first of all, produced this mon monstrous thing, $35,000 machine, the Lisa. And then when all of that was out and working, figured out how to slim it down and make it accessible and produce the Mac. So it was the same marketing trick. Do the big thing, the Baroque thing, understand it, then figure out how to make it marketable. Um, that's just briefly uh, a list of all of the people that were involved in this project because it was a big team effort at the end. Uh, I was just dash dashing around from one to the other. Uh, and the various libraries and archivists and so forth. Uh, once I got my archive card, they, there, was, there was no shortage of people willing to help me. Okay. And then finally my editor at Princeton University Press, who was the person that helped me turn this into the book because uh, it, it was actually those two people who took my life. I didn't know how to turn it into a book, but they sort of guided me onto how to turn uh, a diary, a loose, messy diary, into a book. So that, that took a while. Um, and I'll just leave you with a couple of nice pictures. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. We have time for some questions. Would anybody like to ask some questions? Yeah. Down there? Uh, if you could just wait until the microphone. Well, that's we have microphones a roving microphone. Down. Uh, the reason is we we record the talks and, and we like to record the questions too if yeah. we can. Thank you. Um, just a quick question about the um, the, the books, the uh, uh, Barchi books that came after his. Yeah. Given that they were, they were for merchants and these merchants were travelling around, were other translations or other copies found in other countries. And I say this also because this is possible parallel to the, if we go right back to the Indians, um, Indian mathematicians took a lot of influence from the Greeks and continued on long after the Greeks sort of faded away. And so there are tens of thousands of manuscripts in, in, it, in India and, and around the world 
all about mathematics, which is about the Greek yeah. mathematics. Similarly here, if there are merchants moving around... Yeah, did... yeah. in fact, what it was, um, the, the Italians were really good about this. First of all, it, it moved north, and it, when it got to Venice, eventually, along the northern border of, of, along the northern border of Italy, basically... Hostels were set up where people, initially it was the Germans that came along, the Germans came in and they wanted to learn this, so the Italians set up hostels near the northern border, so the Germans would come, they'd stay for a few weeks in this hotel where they would have classes, so they would come in and be taught this and make copies of books, and that way it went into Germany and then it went into Europe. So yes, uh, not only did it happen, but the Italians found a way of making money out of it by renting out places and setting up hostels where they could sort of put people up and teach them at the same time. So it's very, you know, these, these are the, you know, this was Italy in the, in the medieval times. They just suddenly just burst forward. You know, they were inventing universities and all this stuff going on. So it's really quite a dramatic time. But yes, it went up and then it, it went, moved up through Europe with different translations. <laughs> Very quick question. Um, why do all the marginal annotations tend to be in red? Ah, yes, yeah, so that, that's an interesting fact. So you'll notice that um, these books, everything's essentially written in text, except for the numerals, which are in brown, usually. So the, the, the ink is, is a dark ink, then there's the, usually brown is for the, for the numerals because they were the only symbols involved. And that was the, so the question, and then, the, in the, in, then you've got marginal notes, uh, usually in a different color. Okay, so, I mean, the color code is, is essentially just that people were uh, making one copy first time. Uh, the numerals, for whatever reason, you know, they, they put in a different color. That was just part of the fashion in, in many of these things. And then later they would use a different color when they did the marginal notes. But there's something interesting going on here, because what that shows is that, in those days, even though mathematics, and this was even true for algebra, if you were describing algebra, algebra wasn't described using symbols, that began in the 15th century. So algebra was essentially done using words. If you go back to Al-Khwarizmi's algebra book, his first algebra in the 19th century, it's all written in words. And the reason was this, books had to be hand copied. The authors of math textbooks that involved algebraic symbols knew that the people copying them, very often monks in monasteries, would not be able to accurately copy symbols because it wouldn't, they wouldn't understand them. So it was almost guaranteed that when the copy was made, the symbols would either be miscopied or very often missed out altogether. The only way, therefore, to ensure that the math textbook was useful was to write everything in words. So they used the words like the unknown and so forth. The unknown is three times that and, and itself multiplied by itself. Everything was described in words because words, of course, have self-error correction for humans. Humans very rarely misspell a word, and even if they do, it doesn't make any difference. You can figure out what it means. But of course, for a learner, I mean, that can just kill it for the learner. They've got no way of, of recovering from that. So in order to make books useful, everything was written in text, so that the text is literally a text. It's in prose with numerals. When people did the annotations, very often the annotations became part of that canon and, and the next person might copy some of those annotations. They were very often in symbols and in the margins. So prior to the printing press, mathematics was delivered through words and explained and explicated with symbols in the margins. With the printing press, that flipped completely. After the printing press, the symbols were printed 
in text, because they could be, and people then would just scribble words in the margin to explain the symbols. So the symbols were elaborating the text prior to the printing press. The text was explaining the symbols after the printing press. So it was, there's actually very interesting things going on. So it's not just a colour thing. It's the status of what's in the margin. Uh, when that person, the, the widow uh, of the person who translated Liber Abaci, Lawrence Siegler, when she had to do that in tech, she had to master tech to a degree where she could put marginal notes and marginal tables in, in the document. And quite frankly, I became pretty good at writing in tech. And I never figured out how to put tables in the margins. I mean, if I'd spent a few weeks, I'd have done it, but she did. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting story, um, but it really is a it's, what it's really reflecting is the status of what's in the margin. The, 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 believe the stuff that's in the text, and on your own peril, read the stuff in the margin. And it was very often just written for the person themselves. But of course, once it was copied by somebody else, they would also copy some of that as well. Uh, okay, we have maybe time for another question. One more question, perhaps? Just wondering, why do you think, um, I mean, obviously, you've made the point that writing these uh, concepts and ideas down helped to spur on this sort of uh, drive in the West. Um, why do you think that the Arabic nations didn't see fit to write some of this stuff down, given that they had written so much other mathematics down, as, you sh as you've shown? Yeah, I guess um, we're certainly, so everything was written down, and they certainly scaled it up, but you know, I think it's just a case of the, being at the right time and the right place. It just, society wasn't at that stage then. The, the idea of having sort of business conglomerates, I mean, you need all the pieces together. You need, you need a legal system that will support it. They probably did have the legal system, if you look back at it, but you need to have um, the various bits and pieces uh, to have you know, a codified a system of, of, of accounting, you need sort of places to learn, you need universes, you need, you need all of those pieces to be in place. And it first came together, just, you know, it had to come together somewhere and it came together in Italy. It was just not, the time was just not ready for it then. Um, I mean, looking back, it's sort of hard to say why, you know, given that they were, the amount of, the, if you look back at the mathematics that was done, not just by Al Khwarizmi, but other people at that time, the mathematics of that era was phenomenal. They were summing infinite series. They were summing geometric series. They had bits of what we would now think of calculus and real analysis. This was, it was dramatic mathematics. Um, they had engineering. They had civil engineering. They certainly had trade. But I think you know, they, were, they were ahead of the game at that point. They were the, the, the leaders both culturally and in terms of, of industry and commerce. But it just hadn't gone far enough. There just weren't enough pieces to make it all work. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's you know why does Silicon Valley only happen to the degree it does where it does because that's the only place on the planet where all those pieces are together and it's really that phenomenon. Um, I was really struck when I was doing this story of how the place where was I regarded as home was, re was was the same thing going on. It's absolutely the same thing to the degree where you have all of these battles between you know Apple and Samsung and so forth. When Hindu Arabic, when, when, when the, the local traders in Florence and Pisa started using Arabic numerals, the bookkeepers in Florence lent on the city council and got them to ban them. For several years, you were not allowed to trade in Roman numerals by penalty of law. Nothing is new. It was all there. So they had these legal battles. They had people whose livelihoods were threatened. You know, all of a sudden, the people who provided financial services 
we've been Ubered out of existence. You just had the Uber of mathematics coming along with Libra Marchi. Anyone could get that book and set up in business. It's like, you know, you buy your car, you get an Uber sticker, and you're away. Um, if history tells us anything, Uber is going to win, which actually, I'm not too happy about that <laughs> for various reasons. You know, I have the Lyft app on my, uh, on my iPhone, but it doesn't help me in Australia. Um, though apparently soon, I've got a Lyft is coming here. It's a much more pretty icon. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it, it's everything's sort of familiar. But I think it's really a matter of the time had to be ripe. And it just happened to be that Italy was, was on the cusp of that thing. Uh, Germany was in a position that they could follow very quickly. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you all for coming and joining us. And it remains to thank <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.